brother. Thank you. Good morning, Graham Emanuel. Is God with us? Amen. You know, they have a lot of conferences. They write a lot of books about how to plant churches. But I think I know the secret. Just look for trees. A lot of churches planted under trees. We have no excuse, Graham, right? Uh, God has given us plenty of trees here in this region. Thank you, Jeff, for sharing. We are a local church. We are a local ecclesia, but we are also part of the universal church, the universal ecclesia. And our mission as a church is to make disciples both here locally and regionally, but also globally. So never forget the role that we play as a church in the global body of Christ and the call that we have. Before we dive into our sermon, I just want to give a brief update for me and my family. Thank you for all your prayers that I asked for last week. By God's grace, we did close on our house on Friday. So it is sold. That was a wonderful, wonderful feeling on Friday afternoon when we found that everything was finished and settled. So we're just giving glory to God for that. And yeah, we thank you uh, for those prayers. Keep praying. Now we're uh, transitioning to the next step where we're praying and we're going to start talking to the right people about uh, the steps that we need to take to find a permanent home here in western Washington. So we're going to be trusting in God's timing. Uh, in the meantime, we just moved into an apartment. We stayed with my in-laws, uh, which was great. And now we're going to be uh, in a month-to-month lease at an apartment so we can uh, really just trust in God's timing for when uh, the right home comes. Uh, so pray that uh, Jesus comes back down uh, or that interest rates come back down. Um, that's, that's really my prayer right now. Um, and let's get ready for uh, our sermon this morning with one more word of prayer, just because it's so important that we put the focus, that we gear our heart towards the importance of God's word and the power that it has by his spirit to impact our lives. So pray that God works through his word uh, with me this morning. Heavenly Father, may you use your word to penetrate and cut into areas of our heart and our soul that we have perhaps hardened with habitual sin, that we have dismissed and pushed aside with the, for the sake of comfort and a casual attitude. May you cut with your word and put our focus where it needs to be on your son, Jesus Christ, and the need to follow him and imitate him in our words and our thoughts and our actions. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you weren't qualified? It's a terrible feeling, isn't it? It's awful. I remember when uh, Anna was born, uh, my firstborn, uh, my first daughter, when, when she was born just a few months ago. She came out and I realized, wow, uh, she didn't come with an instruction manual. I don't feel qualified for this job. Uh, whether it's uh, running some piece of machinery or doing some kind of task, or whatever it may be, it is a scary thing, it is a tough thing to realize that we are called to do something that we don't feel qualified for. And in the same way, we could also argue uh, that as Christians, we looked at our sermon last week and we saw how God has qualified us to walk in a manner that is worthy of him. Yet we see that word qualify, and we may accept it, and we may say, okay, it's nice that we are qualified to walk in a way that imitates Christ, but what does that really mean? 
most of us, we go about our lives and maybe we hear a sermon about how God has qualified us to obey him and to follow him, but we don't really understand the implications of that in our day-to-day life. It's almost like handing a five-year-old a driver's license and thinking that because that five-year-old has a driver's license, that that means that he or she is qualified to drive a car. Likely not. Just because they have the car, just because their face is on it, just because their name is on it, doesn't mean that they actually know and understand what they need to know and understand in order to actually do that task. So in the same way, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, if you want to turn with me in Colossians chapter 1, we are going to find that as we come to the end of the introduction that we started last week, we are going to find that Paul in verses 13 and 14 of Colossians chapter 1 is going to explain a key word that he brought up in verse 12. That in verse 12, Paul wrote to the Colossians, he told them that giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We talked about how the work that we need the preparedness that we need, uh, what we need to be able to do in order to please God and in order to share in the inheritance of God's people, that God has already qualified us for that. But we need to better understand how that actually plays out in our actual life. And so in verses 13 and 14, Paul is going to explain how God has actually qualified us to walk in a manner worthy of him, and how he has qualified us to share in this inheritance of a thing that God's people share in. So if you look with me at verse 13, let's read verse 13. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Going on into verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If we look at this entire introduction, you'll notice that he has that inclusio where he begins and ends with the concept of father. Paul begins by calling God our father, and he ends in verse 12 by referring to God as our father. And he's talked about how the father has qualified us. But now in verses 13 and 14, he's going to shift the focus from the father Now to the Son. He's going to talk about the role of the Son and what the Father is doing. And in doing so, he's actually going to prepare the way for one of the most famous passages on the person of Jesus that's going to start next week in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. So all of this brings us to our big idea for this morning, which you can put on the screen, that the way that God qualifies us The way that he actually prepares us and makes us suitable for the work that he has for us and for the inheritance that we share as his people is specifically through his son. Last week we talked about how we need to put focus on God the Father when we pray to him, when we express thankfulness to him. Well, the reason why we need to put focus on God the Father is because what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the way that we should understand Jesus. We shouldn't just understand Jesus as just 
another heavenly being or this other guy in heaven who has a brown beard while God the Father has a white beard. Uh, No, they are both one and the same. They are both God, but God the Father is the one who sends God the Son in order to do the work that he wants to do in us, this work of qualifying. And in verses 13 and 14, which we just read, we're going to look at four ways that God has qualified us through the work of his son. So let's start in verse 13. Paul begins by saying that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. This brings us to our first point, that the first way that God qualifies believers is by delivering them from the domain of darkness. If you notice at the end of verse 12, Paul actually uses the word light at the end of verse 12 before talking about darkness at the beginning of verse 13. This concept of darkness and light, it's existed for centuries. It was very common in Jewish thought. It's not just something that Star Wars created with a dark side and a light side. The Jewish people tended to understand being in God's will, being part of God's plan, being uh, God's people as being part of the light. While they looked at Gentiles and pagans and those who were not following Yahweh as those who were part of darkness. That was something that was true in Judaism. And uh, what we see here in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 8, is we see that even the Jewish people, when they thought about being delivered from darkness and being transferred into light, or, or being taken out of this domain of darkness, that they associated it with the Exodus. That they thought of the Exodus as God delivering his people out of darkness. You can see the passage here. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Let's go to the next slide. This is something kind of interesting. This isn't scripture. You can write this down in your notes. This is a very important uh, piece of history, but it's not the Bible. This is something called the Mishnah. The Mishnah was like a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament that existed during the New Testament age, that existed in the first couple of centuries uh, A.D. And the Mishnah, it's not the Bible, but it helps us understand how Jews thought about the Old Testament, both in good ways and bad ways. And in the Mishnah, in this passage that we see, we find this incredible example, uh, this statement here that Paul would have been familiar with, that the Jewish people, when they would even celebrate Passover, when they would celebrate God delivering them from the bondage of the Egyptians that we just read about in Exodus chapter 6, that they would celebrate the Passover by reciting these lines and by making these statements, one of them specifically being the fact that God had delivered them from darkness to great light. So the whole point of, why, of how we should understand this first phrase here, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, is, is again this focus on an exodus. That just as God had brought his people out of the bondage of slavery, 
In the same way, God has brought Christians out of a spiritual bondage to sin. And just as the Jewish people looked at the physical exodus and they described it in terms of being brought out of the domain of darkness, so too we Christians, we should recognize that God, even though we live in this dark world, that God has freed us from the bondage of this dark world. Many of us think that because we live in the secular society where we're always being tempted to sin, where we always have uh, temptations brought before us, where we're just surrounded by idolatry and wickedness, that we're just helpless to obey God. And that's not true. Even though we are still present technically in this dark world, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, that he has delivered us from the domain or from the power, from, from the bondage of this dark world. So you have to ask yourself, are you living as if you are free or whether or not you are enslaved to this dark world? Because even though you are living here present on it, doesn't mean that you are enslaved to it. You are like an Israelite who has been freed out of Egypt, but after being freed, what did some of them do? They looked back to Egypt. They wanted to go back. They wanted to live under that slavery again. Are you the same way? But there's one specific point that's missing from this concept here of being delivered from the domain of darkness. And it has to do with what I showed you here on the missionary. Because the Jewish people, when they thought about the Exodus, when they thought about the Passover, when they thought about being transferred from darkness into light, there was one very specific thing that made that possible, that they reminded themselves of year after year. The Passover lamb. The Passover lamb. The only reason why they could be delivered out of the domain of darkness, the only reason why they could have freedom from the bondage of their slavery was because of the sacrifice of the lamb that was without blemish. So the question is, is Paul, he's almost begging the question that if he's going to talk about Christianity as this new exodus, and if the old exodus put the focus on this sacrificial lamb, who is the lamb for the new exodus? That's going to lead us to our second point. Remember, he's shifting the focus from God the Father to God the Son. And one of the ways that he's doing that is he's explaining Christianity in terms of the exodus, something that was only possible with a lamb that was killed and died as a sacrifice. The second point, the way that God qualifies us is not just delivering us from the bondage of slavery to sin in this world, but going on to our second point, we're going to have to skip to the second point now, is that God qualifies believers by transferring them. So he starts out by delivering out of darkness, but now the next word that we see in verse 13 is transferring. He has transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved son which you see that laid out in our second point. That the second way that God qualifies believers is by transferring them to the kingdom of his son. That word transfer is an amazing word. It's the same kind of word that would be used to describe conquering kings 
who are going to take people captive and move them from one land to another. So like in Daniel, when uh, the Israelites are conquered by the Babylonians and people are whisked away and brought into Babylon, that same word of transfer is being used. That not only has God delivered us from the power of this dark world, not only has God delivered us from the slavery of this dark world, he has also brought us into a new reality. He has entered us into a new kingdom, and that kingdom is not just any kingdom. It's a kingdom that is focused specifically on one person. That sacrificial lamb that makes the delivering from darkness possible. Paul specifically describes that God has transferred us not just into any kingdom, but into the kingdom of his beloved son. The way that God qualifies believers is by freeing them from the bondage of sin, but by putting them now not under the dominion of darkness, but under the dominion of Jesus. This idea of kingdom, the kingdom of God's beloved son, I don't think many Christians really understand the power of the concept of kingdom and how it actually impacts our spiritual lives. You'll see here that we have a couple of verses in Genesis. At the very beginning of the story of salvation in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 17, as God is giving his promises to Abraham, we call this the Abrahamic covenant, he wasn't just promising Abraham land and descendants, he was also promising that of his descendants, there would be kings. That God's original promise to Abraham was a royal promise. We see this here in Genesis chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. Look at what God says to Abraham. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant or my promise between me and you and your offspring and your son. After you, throughout the generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and for your offspring after you. Notice how God's promise to Abraham isn't just to Abraham, but also to this singular offspring that God says is going to come in the future. That God says that kings are going to come from you, Abraham. And one of these people, one of this offspring is going to be a king that I make a covenant with, just like I did with you. He repeats this in Genesis chapter 35. This is actually geographically a cool fact about 35. Abraham is very close to Bethlehem when God gives, uh, or not uh, Abraham, but Jacob is very close to Bethlehem when God reiterates the promise to Jacob. Jacob said to, uh, God said to Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Do you see this focus that's happening in Genesis of this idea of kingdom? This promise of a kingdom that's going to be given to an offspring, to a son of Abraham? I had a slide, but I don't want to go to that slide. I want us to actually physically turn to this next passage. Please physically turn to 2 Samuel 
2 Samuel chapter 7. This is so important. We call this the Davidic covenant. David is a son of Abraham. He's a son of Jacob. Just like God made a promise or a covenant to Abraham, he's also making a promise, a covenant to the son of Abraham, David, who is king. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and specifically verses 12 through 16. This would be worth writing in your notes. This would be worth remembering. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible. It still impacts us today. It impacts our future. This is God talking to David in verse 12. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, again singular, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. God is reiterating what was originally given to Abraham. God says that this future king, he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Notice the parallel language to Colossians 1.13. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God is making it clear that part of his plan for his people is for there to be this kingdom. For him not just to deliver them from the powers of someone else, but to transfer them, to put them into a new setup. Colossians chapter 1.13 is just the exclamation point. It's the climax of centuries of prophecies that God has given about this king who is coming, about this offspring, about this son who is coming, who is going to have a kingdom. We can go to the passages in Matthew that I had prepared for us. You'll see some powerful examples in Matthew. When Jesus came, what did Jesus teach about? Don't just follow me. Don't just be nice to each other. Repent for the kingdom, that kingdom that God spoke about in 2 Samuel 7, that kingdom that God spoke about to Abraham and Jacob. The kingdom is near. That's why Jesus talks about the kingdom in the Gospels in these passages and so many more. The way that God qualifies us to share in an inheritance and to walk in a manner worthy of him is not just freeing us from the power of sin, but also making us citizens of the authority in the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is our king, that means we do what the king says. It means that we obey and we act in, um, in accordance to the king. We have a certificate. We have a license that says we are citizens of the kingdom. It's not here yet. God's kingdom is still physically going to come in the future, but we are still citizens of it while we are waiting for it. And that should impact the way that we live. So when God qualifies us, he qualifies us in two ways. By the sacrificial lamb of his son, Jesus Christ, who freed us from bondage, but also in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who also acts as our king. 
who is the king that had been promised that we are citizens of. Let's go to the final two points. Let's go to point three. This looks at verse 14. And you'll notice that in verse 14, the focus is now completely on Jesus. This offspring, this son that was mentioned in Genesis and mentioned in 2 Samuel, Paul says in Colossians that we are transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, in whom, verse 14, the focus is now completely on Jesus, in whom we have two things. We have redemption and forgiveness of sins. The third point, the third way that God qualifies us is by redeeming us. God qualifies believers by redeeming them. In the Old Testament, after the Exodus, there was this concept that God gave in the law called the concept of kinsman redemption. Kinsman redemption. It was God's way of making sure that the Israelites never became enslavers in the same way that the Egyptians did. And what this taught is that if you had a brother or a family member who had debt, who was put into slavery, that it was the obligation of the family member to pay the price, to make that payment that was necessary to buy that person out of slavery. Jesus Christ is that price. The reason why God is able to deliver us from the domain of darkness is because he redeemed us as a kinsman redeemer by paying the price of his beloved son. That's what redemption means. Redemption means to buy back. Redemption means to purchase. Redemption means to buy someone's freedom, but not just for free, but at a price. Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb, is that price that was paid. That is what redemption is. And you'll notice that verse 14 The first half of verse 14 connects to the first half of verse 13. That we have deliverance because we have Jesus as our redemption. Jesus was the ransom price that was paid, just like that sacrificial lamb, to buy us out of our slavery. Now let's look at the fourth and final point. That God qualifies believers also by pardoning them. And the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And just as redemption coincides with being delivered from darkness, so too does being pardoned coincide with having access into the kingdom of God. Because in order to go before the throne of God, in order to be in his kingdom, we must also be holy as God is holy. And by Jesus' death on the cross, he has provided pardon. He has provided forgiveness for our sins. So we see here that the work of God in our life that we should be thanking him for, the act of grace of God working in our hearts so that we can produce fruit for him, that work of God is completely centralized and manifested in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. So it is impossible to worship God It's impossible to be thankful to God, and it's impossible to please God without putting the focus on what God has done through Jesus. It's why Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus is the way that God 
qualifies us. And as we end, I want you to notice something in verses 13 and 14. All throughout chapter 1, when Paul is writing this letter, he says, you, 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 we, we, referring to himself and Timothy, but then you, you Colossians, you Colossians, you'll see it all throughout the letter. But after verse 12, after Paul says that God has qualified us, to share in the inheritance of his people who are in the light because of Jesus, in verses 13 and 14, Paul shifts the you to us. That the reason we can have unity as a church, the reason why we can all come from different backgrounds and different perspectives, but have one heavenly father, is only because of the work of Jesus sent by the father. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the work that you have done for us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we never forget the focus that our attention should have on the work of Jesus for us, dying on the cross for our sin, to deliver us from the dominion of darkness, and to be in his kingdom, to act as citizens of his kingdom, even before it has physically come. Lord, we pray that your kingdom does come quickly. We look forward to the return of the King to establish his throne, what was promised in Abraham, what was promised in David, that we will be able to see that. But in the meantime, we will live as citizens of that kingdom by your grace and by your qualifying work in our hearts to do so. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the lamb and the king. Amen. All right. Thank you all. Have a blessed Sunday. Go in peace.